Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. The title of the book we're here to discuss today is The Theft of a Decade, How Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. And the author is Joseph Sternberg, who's a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, where he writes the political economics column. He joined the Wall Street Journal in 2006 as an editorial writer in Hong Kong, where he edited the Business Asia column, which is where I first interacted with you years ago. Responding to him today, uh, first is my colleague here at AEI, Ramesh Panuru, who's a visiting fellow here and examines the future of conservatism with a lot of attention on healthcare, economic policy, and constitutionalism. Finally, joining us uh, as another respondent is Connor Williams, a fellow at the Century Foundation where he writes about education, immigration, early childhood education, school choice, and work-life balances for American families. Without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Joe Sternberg to the podium. I'm going to be focusing on two of the uh, big questions that I tackle in the book, uh, economic questions, and then I suspect we're going to talk a little bit about the politics uh, later in the program. Two economic questions that I've been focusing a lot on as I've been talking about this book are, first off, what happened to millennials over the past decade? Uh, Because I found that there's a lot of confusion about this point. There's a lot of uh, confusion about whether anything did happen to millennials over the past decade that was unusual compared to what had happened to previous generations. So I'm going to uh, spend a few minutes arguing to you that actually millennials have had a really rough go in the economy over the past decade. Uh, and that this is a real problem for us. Uh, I'm a millennial myself. Uh, that's very unusual to what previous generations uh, have faced. And of course, the second question is, who did it? Uh, and so I'm going to argue that uh, actually a lot of what we are living through right now is a result of various policy choices instead of forces of economic nature or the natural evolution of the economy. Uh, and I think that this uh, way of thinking about policy choices instead of inevitability should have a big impact on the way some of these issues play out politically over the next few years. So. Before I get into either of those questions, though, I want to quickly define what a millennial is, uh, because this is the other thing I've discovered a lot of people seem to be really confused about. And the big point is that we're older than you think we are. Uh, So when I'm talking about millennials in this talk, I'm looking at a generation that was born around 1981 to 1996. Uh, So that means a lot of us were just at the age where we were entering the labor force uh, when the financial panic and the, the Great Recession hit. And the youngest of us are already out of college. So if you came here expecting me to talk about all of these snowflakes that we hear about on college campuses, you're going to be disappointed. That's not our fault. That is uh, Generation Z, the people who are coming after us. So if we're talking about what happened to millennials, I think that the, the start and the end of that discussion has to be the labor market. And this is a big part of the story that I tried to tell in the book, uh, because it malfunctioned for us in a spectacular fashion that was really unusual compared to a lot of previous um, economic downturns that America had been through. Um, Certainly we saw a spike in youth unemployment because we saw a spike in overall unemployment. And of course, young people are always the most vulnerable in any economic downturn. 
But I think that what made it different uh, this time around was the severity. I mean, we're familiar with thinking about the Great Recession as the worst downturn America had suffered since the Depression. And that means that inevitably young people were going to be hard hit by that. And what exacerbated the fact is that we had an enormous cohort of young people entering the labor market at that time. You know, depending on how you count, there are anywhere between 71 and 80 million millennials floating around in the American population right now. And so that meant that the economy was trying to absorb an enormous cohort of young, uh, you know, still developing their skills workers uh, pr during the worst downturn that we had suffered in 80 years. And the other interesting thing about this downturn is that it seemed to affect a lot of different companies differently. And some of the hardest hit companies in this downturn, um, you know, particularly tended to be the smaller companies that young workers are most reliant on for initial job opportunities. Um, and so that meant that you had a lot of um, you know, unemployed millennials floating around. And you arguably had more unemployed millennials than the unemployment data suggested, because we also uh, you know, lived through a trend where more and more of us were going to school as a form of warehouse for ourselves while we waited for the job market to recover. Um, you know, you can see evidence for that in a, a spike in uh, you know, attendance at higher education right around the time of the Great Recession uh, that I don't think is explained uh, just by this normal trend where millennials were always going to go to college in higher numbers than our, our parents would have done. And you can also uh, detect hints of it in survey data now that suggests that a lot of millennials feel underemployed in their jobs now that they've graduated. Um, you know, I think that you know, one interpretation of that might be that we have unrealistic expectations about doing glamorous work right after we graduate. But I think there's also a strong case that you ended up with a millennial labor force that had acquired a lot of education um, and training to try to inoculate ourselves against the effects of the downturn and then discovered that that didn't work for us. Now, these bad labor market uh, dynamics have fed directly into two of the other big things that have happened to millennials over the past decade. Uh, one is the student debt crisis that we hear so much about. I mean, one implication of a lot of millennials uh, finding their way into higher education to try to protect themselves from the downturn uh, was a dramatic accumulation of student debt during this period. Uh, and then another implication of that is that if the job opportunities still weren't available for us when we graduated, that debt burden seemed so much more unmanageable than it would have been otherwise. And you know, that is an important point that I think um, you know, casts a new light on some of the politics around the student debt issue right now. Millennials, I think, often feel cheated by some of the investments that we've made in higher education. Uh, because the labor market returns haven't been there for us as a consequence of the fact that it took the economy such a long time to recover you know, in terms of the employment situation. You know, the next shoe to drop as a result of the bad labor market that we've suffered over the past 10 years is going to be the housing market. Um, and I think here millennials often find ourselves caught in a catch-22 because the places where there are job opportunities for us uh, tend to be in thriving urban areas, uh, you know, here in Washington, New York, uh, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle. But those are the places where uh, you know, housing is least affordable for us. And millennials often find themselves in a trap where you know, the job market, even once you're in a place where you can find a job, isn't quite 
delivering the wage level that will you know, allow you to afford housing in the areas where you've had to move for work. And yeah, I think that that is something that is creating a lot of uh, strain for millennials. And I think it's important to understand when we're talking about what happened to millennials is that actually for a lot of uh, people in this generation, it is not a question in the past tense. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that, that suggests that these effects are going to be very long-lasting for this generation. You know, there's uh, growing evidence to suggest that if you uh, enter the labor market in a downturn when unemployment is unusually high, it will take you a decade or more to recover the cumulative lost earnings that you miss out on earlier in your career. Um, you know, I think that you, millennials uh, right now find themselves saddled with a lot of long-term student debts that are going to you know, long outlast the downturn that might have helped push some of us at the margin into uh, additional education. And housing is going to be a real challenge because if you are a millennial now, and again, some of us are older than you think we are. I'm, a, I'm 37. I'm a millennial myself. And, uh, you know, people, especially at the older end of the range who haven't been able to climb onto the housing ladder yet, find themselves wondering if they will ever be able to and have the house paid off by the time we'd be expecting to retire. But I think the big point of this exercise for me was that first there really is a problem. And I think that in order to have a balanced political discussion uh, about a lot of these issues moving forward, I think that uh, both ends of the political spectrum are going to have to realize that millennials, younger voters, are not crazy for thinking that we have serious economic problems that are continuing to linger. Um, and then my, my final point, uh, which I hope is a theme that comes out clearly in the book, is just a plea for um, you know, continued creative thinking about a lot of these problems, uh, because clearly millennials are casting around for new solutions uh, you know, for something that seems to deviate from what felt like a, a boomer era consensus on how to tackle a lot of these issues. Um, I think that my, my take on the big political trend, this notion that millennials are invariably gravitating toward the socialist left, is not necessarily that we're entirely persuaded by those arguments, because some of the polling can be a little bit mixed, uh, but that we um, you know, are looking for more competition in terms of answers to these problems, that we want to see a more dynamic discussion about a lot of that. And so particularly speaking to an audience here at AEI, uh, my plea to people who are on the uh, rightward end of the spectrum or the free market end is to take these problems seriously and really focus intensively on engaging with a lot of the issues that millennials are concerned about right now. Well, hi, I'm Connor Williams. Uh, I'm here. Just uh, let me offer a few reasons why I'm here. First, I'm here ostensibly because I'm a fellow at the Century Foundation. It's a think tank just up the road, uh, a bit to the left of AEI, and so I'm the ideological diversity today. Uh, but I'm also here because I'm a dad, uh, father of two children, and I'm here as the youth voice because, I, according to Joe's book, I'm a year younger than he is. Uh, but mostly I'm here because I biked to AEI today, and that's to say, I biked because I like biking. It's just an easy way to get around. But it also saves me in the order of two to $3,000 a year, according to my calculations, in terms of saved gym memberships, in terms of money I didn't spend on parking or uh, uh, public transit. That is one of the many things I do on a day to week to month to yearly basis to kind of scrimp together enough um, 
enough money for all the other things that I have to pay for, including especially those two kids. So that's to say that I'm here because I am, uh, and I want you to filter everything I say for the rest of this through this lens. I am your success sequence. I am a, uh, every single rule that usually as a conservative on the panel says, those millennials are so promiscuous and they're frivolous and there's avocados on their toast and there's all these. <laughs> I am the sober-minded man, the one who uh, got a job at nine, saved a ton for his own college, who was in a first-generation college, uh, single-income uh, family of six, went to college on heavy financial aid, married the girl that I dated in college, uh, in my 20s, had a couple of kids in my 20s, about to have my third, which, again, forgive me, if I just tear out, that's because that's where I'm going. Uh, I went to grad school. I kept working there. I have my entire life, everything that the, the success sequence people say, keep your nose clean and work hard and, and you know, get a degree and what have you, I did all of that. And I realized something after we had our kids, and this is how I got passionate about this, uh, was I was saving aggressively for retirement. I was putting money in 529s as soon as kids were born to save for their college. I paid down my own student loan debt. We're on our way on my wife's student loan debt. We just weren't getting to any of the milestones as fast as my parents did. I was out earning my dad currently, and I think also, I know also, at every stage of, of my career, out earning him, and still not able to put it all together. And I thought, this just, again, I followed all the rules. So ticked off about this. And so I wrote a piece for The Guardian, which is part of how I got here on this stage. Bernie Sanders boosted it on Facebook, which meant that the entire internet gave me feedback. <laughs> and it turns out that the internet wanted to play a game for my version of this book, if I ever can scrape together enough money to take the risk, to take the time, congratulations, to actually write my version. The game they want to play is the you should adjust game. So we're going to play now. This is what the mistakes I made. They said, well, you should have just gone to a different college, a cheaper one. You should have just not gone to college. Or if you did go, majored in something else. And then repeat with grad school. You should have just moved to a less safe neighborhood where you live in the city you live in. You should have just left the city entirely, moved to the suburbs. You should have just left cities and moved to a different region, a cheaper place, a smaller town. Uh, you should have just bought a car so you could live in the suburbs. You should have just not bought a car. You should have got a car at a different time. You should have married someone else, married at a different age. You should have not gotten married yet. You should have had kids at a different time, a different number of kids. You should have not had kids at all. You should have had your parents die already. You should have saved more for retirement. You should have used your retirement to buy the house. You should have gotten a side job, another side job, a couple of side jobs. And there were some things they didn't say, which again, were all sort of my like, unearned luck. Well, not call it privilege exactly, because this was just luck. I never really got catastrophically sick. Uh, the couple of various accidents and traumas that we went through were all cancer scares, not cancer. They were all minor um, issues around car accidents and you know, assaults and things like that. Uh, they never said, well, you shouldn't have gotten arrested, because I didn't. The point was, all those things are true, right? It is true that all of those choices have a lot to do with upward mobility. It's also the case that I made most of those choices between 18 and 22 or 18 and 25, and at the time was living forwards. Now, understanding backwards, it, I could have maybe had a better, smoother financial path if I'd majored in something else or had a different number of kids or what have you. 
But I had no way of knowing that. All I was doing was following the rules, making what were eminently defensible, reasonable choices for somebody my age to make. And it turned out those were, according to the internet, deeply consequential choices that I should kind of feel bad about. And that's what it means to be a youngish. Because let's be honest, this is about my last ever panel as the youth voice. This will never <laughs> happen again. To be a youngish working father in the United States right now feels like that. It feels like every choice you make, no matter how serious you take yourself and how anxious you are about it and how carefully you sort of weigh your options, you're always at a much higher risk than you used to be of it just kind of going sideways and you got an extra five years before you can retire. It all goes sideways and you, you, know, you got into the housing market, but you got in after all the growth had pretty much gone in. That asset's so overvalued now, it's just not going to pay off. So that's what I'm here. I'm the canary in the mine. I'm here to tell you that if a guy like me, who again had college-educated parents, first-gen college, but still, I'm a white guy, I'm a straight guy, I have a PhD, my relationship sort of survived college and survived till now. Everything went sort of broke my way. And I still, it's taken me a while to put it all together. I warn you that the people who are flocking to radical solutions to our political present, they're flocking because oftentimes they don't have either my luck, my privileges, or just the really defensible choices they made just didn't pan out. And it's not really their fault. It's just that we've made the path so precarious now. So on that, I'll turn to you, Ramesh. I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> Well, Connor is uh, bringing the ideological diversity, as he promised. I'm bringing the generational diversity, being a Gen X guy here. I frankly thought that the book should have talked a little bit more about my generation and our impeccable musical taste, our <laughs> admirable introversion, uh, and all the other characteristics that make us so universally celebrated. Um, I, uh, I tend to have a certain allergy towards a kind of generational politics, towards um, overstatements, generalizations about generations that tend uh, often to exaggerate um, what different age cohorts have in common and underestimate the uh, diversity within generations. Um, but uh, I liked this book more than I thought I would going in with that predisposition. Uh, I thought uh, there, was, there were a lot of places where um, there, was, there was nuance uh, and thoughtfulness, and, uh, and it was throughout uh, very intelligent and humane. Um, I should say I'm, I'm allergic to generational politics on, on both sides. So it is certainly true that um, particularly as the age profile of American conservatism has gotten older, you are hearing more and more complaints about young people these days. And uh, yeah, that, that you hear a lot about the avocado toast. Um, I, don't, I don't know why that's, that's become quite the flashpoint that it has, but it is. And, uh, uh, and, um, you know, why are they socialists and, you know, why won't they get married already and, uh, and, and so forth. Um, I don't know that the book has totally avoided um, some of the pitfalls, though, of that kind of thinking. So many times during it, I, was, I would read something about, you know, um, uh, millennials um, reporting much higher degrees of worry about their financial future. Um, than baby boomers. And I thought, well, is that a cohort effect or is that just an age effect? Is that just something that people in their early 30s are more likely to do um, than people in their late 50s who presumably have already 
ideally, you know, made and executed uh, their financial plans, or at least have a better sense of, uh, of how things are turning out for them. Um, I did agree with the emphasis on the huge lingering effects of the Great Recession. Um, I think it is, it is important to think about um, the well-documented fact that to uh, join the labor force in the middle of a recession um, is to take a hit to your lifetime earnings. It's not just uh, a hit to a couple of years um, that you then sort of bounce back from. I didn't agree with a lot of the analysis of policies that led to the recession or that were responsive to the recession. Uh, in particular, I thought that the discussion of monetary policy and interest rates, although there I, I, I had to laugh when he uh, was talking about how monetary policy feels obscure to a lot of millennials. I can trust me that it's true for uh, across the generations that binds <laughs> us all, binds us all together. Um, so, for example, there's a discussion of how uh, the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate uh, was lower in the 90s than in the 80s, and then lower s still subsequently. Well, a lot of that is what you would expect um, it, when you've got a declining inflation environment, when you've got a declining risk premium. Uh, and it's an exaggeration of the extent to which there was a kind of policy choice um, toward lower interest rates. Uh, and an underestimate of the extent to which that's just sort of where market forces uh, would lead you. Um, and to the, you know, the idea that sort of that over the last 10 years we've hurt millennial economic welfare by holding interest rates artificially low. I mean, to the extent that we can look at international evidence on this, I don't know that, the, that it's particularly promising for that thesis. If you look at the um, Eurozone area, for example, which tried to have a less you know, expansionary policy, which raised interest rates in the middle of the Great Recession, I don't know if you'll find that the outcomes were particularly better for young people from doing that. Um, I'll try to move along here. In general, I'm more optimistic about millennial economic outcomes than uh, this book may lead you to be. Uh, on retirement security, for example, partly because I'm influenced by the work of Andrew Biggs at the American Enterprise Institute, I tend to think um, that a lot of that there are some very important discrete problems, some of them highlighted very ably in the book about the entitlements, um, but that um, young people are saving uh, at higher rates than um, previous generations, uh, and that their just their material welfare is higher and is likely to continue to be higher um, than that of their predecessors. Um, as is often the case uh, with these sorts of analyses, there is a discussion about the change from defined benefit to defined contribution pension plans, and it's a balanced discussion that mentions some of the drawbacks of defined benefit plans. But at the same time, you don't you usually ignore, um, and, and here it's also ignored, that most people didn't have those access to those defined benefit plans to begin with. Um, and if you look at what sort of your median worker is experiencing, it's a better retirement security situation than they had. I guess the last, the last point I would make is that um, I don't, you know, look, 
there's a lot of smart analysis about sort of what we should change with the education or sort of what's gone wrong with our education system, what's wrong with housing markets and so forth. And to the extent that you get young people or uh, younger than me people uh, interested in some of these topics and, and give them sort of a thesis that they can, they can fit that analysis into, that's helpful. On the other hand, is theft really the right way to be thinking about this problem? Does it encourage the right kind of problem-solving mindset? Or does it encourage really a kind of whiny ingratitude? Um, because you know, I think there have been some serious mistakes in education policy, uh, some serious mistakes in monetary policy. And so forth. very few of them strike me as things which boomers did to enrich themselves at the expense of, of successor generations. Um, which normally when we think of theft, we think of somebody taking something and enriching themselves. Uh, I, I don't think that almost, I don't think much that's in this book really lends itself to that thesis. Uh, I think it's what is, what really come across uh, in this book is a set of policies that people adopted for, intel for, for sensible reasons, although not always correctly, um, for understandable and non-larcenous reasons, uh, but that in one way or another are working less and less well over time. And when a policy works less and less well over time, that means it's going to work less and less well for younger people. That, I think, is, is the real story that this uh, book tells, and I think it's a very important and useful story. Great. Well, I, I mean, thanks, both of you. And you've actually uh, very helpfully given me a lot that I can bite into in my comments here. And uh, you know, I want to start with sort of what I take to be the big overarching theme of uh, Ramesh's comments, which are that you know, maybe it isn't so bad for the millennials after all. And to which I can only say that I think that uh, you know, Connor has given a very good, uh, coherent explanation for why millennials don't think that way. And you know, I think that we need to be really careful when we're talking about a lot of these issues that we um, you know, not lose sight of kind of what of the actual valuable signal that the millennial perceptions of some of these problems are trying to tell us. You know, I think that actually the politics around of this actually is a signal that even if, you know, I'm sure that if you were looking at Connor's household balance sheet or if you were looking at uh, you know his various financial outcomes. Um, you know, you can come up with headline data that will tell a very positive story about that. And yeah, I think that that can miss a lot of the uh, you know, dynamics that feel like they're going on at a household level. And I mean, I don't necessarily want to argue that, um, you know, one should never push back against a perception if you think that perception is wrong. But I think that one of the points that I wanted to make in the book is that we need to be alert to the fact that particularly in an environment where uh, politically a lot of younger voters are telling us that they feel like something is going wrong economically for them, that actually is a signal that we need to take seriously. And I think that I'm trying to suggest that there might be things that are lurking beneath some of the headline numbers that suggest that there are actual problems going on here. And I'm you know, certainly sympathetic to this argument that the generational issue is often overstated. I think that you know, the term millennial itself had its origins in this uh, book in the late 80s, early 90s, Generations, the History of America's Future, which I think made a lot of social claims about different generational cohorts that haven't really 
stood the test of time very well. But I think that it is reasonable to talk about these issues, these economic issues in generational terms, just because, um, you know, whether by accident or by terrible luck, it happens that um, that way you are capturing the effects on a cohort of the people who happened to be young at the time the Great Recession hit. And, you know, you can start talking about some of the economic implications of that. You know, on issues like the uh, monetary policy, the effect of interest rates, I think I'm not quite so inclined to let uh, boomers off the hook for a lot of those decisions. Uh, because one of the things that uh, I found most striking as I was researching the book is just how little is still understood about um, you know, both the practical effects of a lot of the monetary policies before and after the Great Recession um, and the way that those policies interacted with the economy and the way that could have big implications for um, you know, younger people who were entering the labor market then. You know, there's some, there are some strands of research that are starting to suggest that actually the uh, you know, pro-growth benefits of uh, Fed policies over the past decades were concentrated in areas that were already economically healthy. Uh, that they didn't necessarily do very much to lift boats in um, you know, regions of the country that were struggling. Uh, there's growing you know, reason to believe that those policies were really good for bigger companies that could borrow by accessing the bond markets, uh, but they, they were a lot less helpful for smaller companies that might rely more on bank financing and also happen to be the companies that hire a lot of younger workers uh, like millennials in that marketplace. Um, I mean, one of the things, again, that I, and I mentioned this in my opening remarks on issues, uh, you know, particularly on monetary policy, but in a lot of other areas, so I think we do also need to push back against some of these notions that uh, a lot of these trends were just inevitable. I mean, I don't think that there was anything inevitable about some of the trends in mortgage rates that we happened to see uh, both before and after the, the crisis and the recession. I think that we're... You know, they're starting to see some interesting research that looks at the extent to which actually monetary policy it might, itself might cause some of these phenomena that we then assume are just naturally happening because uh, you know, risk premium are falling or inflation is declining. You know, some of that is actually a choice. It's not a natural consequence of anything. And so I can certainly take the point that there will be a lot of argument um, about particular villains that I identify in the book or, um, you know, about what the policy solutions might be. But I don't think that we can let ourselves off the hook quite so easily uh, by arguing that a lot of this stuff just kind of happened. This has fascinated me. I, I came here prepared to say, you know, one of my problems, I think, with the book is generational solidarity is not a thing, sort of echoing Ramesh, actually. I think the problem is rich people, not old people. Uh, this is a class solidarity issue, really. But now, I kind of need to stand up for millennial. This is, I think I brought stats. <laughs> I did a little research beforehand because again, I was saying before we, in the green room, right? There's, a, there's an article on millennial rage now that goes viral like every other week, pretty much. So I dug back and found a couple of these compelling stats. I mean, one of the fascinating things, if you don't think there's a problem, is to ask uh, boomers how they paid for post-secondary education if they went. You ever, have you ever done this? I, the boomers in the audience, we should feel like I should ask you, but... <laughs> I remember talking to a relative who told me that she, she paid for college entirely with no debt. Four years, private, no financial aid, uh, working at a grocery store on break. That was it. She'd go home for like you know, Christmas, winter break, work, work all summer. That was it. Tuition, board, room, cupboard, everything. 
So I did a little research, dug this up. At minimum wage right now, for or rather, for boomers, the hours of minimum wage work that it took to pay for four years of public college was 306 at minimum wage. You could pay for, for four years. For a millennial, now, on average, 4,459. We have 300% more student loan debt than our parents do did. And we're half as likely to own homes. Now, it could just be that guys like me are whining. I mean, it could be. But I, I think that we do have some macro data that the current situation around credential creep, around zoning, around, a, I think, a bunch of things that are actually, you know, conservatives are amenable to having a conversation about how we've, we've made it immiserating to live near good job markets and what have you. I think there's like good local exclusionary zoning policies that we can you know, work across aisles on. But I don't think we should deny that people who are trying to put it all the pieces together right now are facing a very weird and very expensive path upwards. So I seem to have been slotted into this position of denying that there are problems that affect the economic welfare of millennials. It is not a role that I wish to play. <laughs> um, I, what I do think is that focusing it in a generational way uh, tends, first of all, to exaggerate the problem, and second, to exaggerate the sort of the maleficence or the, the 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 idea that boomers made this made these terrible self-serving choices um, that are hurting the millennials. Uh, and you know, just, just it, there are serious problems that there should we should work on tackling: the higher education. Um, credentialism, the, uh, the the growth of licensing requirements, which again, is just sort of would be absurd to regard through the lens of kind of generational self-interest. Um, why that that um, why the number of job categories that require government licenses has expanded. It's, I, I think that it is sort of an incidentally boomer-focused story. But then you know, let's let's think about a boomer who was born in you know 1950, the height of the baby boom. He's becoming an adult. He's got a risk of going to Vietnam. Uh, the crime rate is high and rising. Um, he's going to get into an economy where growth is significantly slower than it had been in the 1950s and 1960s. He's, he runs into stagflation, um, something that the best and the brightest don't really have great answers to. And so it would be very easy to tell this same kind of story. Woe is us. Um, our predecessors have made terrible decisions, saddled us with these huge problems for which there aren't obvious solutions. Um, we've also got the risk of you know, global thermonuclear war that will destroy all of us. Um, and it just seems to me, you know, look, every generation uh, gets both the assets and liabilities that have been handed down. Uh, and it's just not sort of useful or productive um, to concentrate on the liability side of that. Well, I, I would just like to push back against that a little bit. First off, because I want to be clear uh, to any boomers in the audience, it is safe for you to read this book. <laughs> um, because I do have a lot of sympathy for this argument, which, believe you me, I have heard quite a lot over the past week uh, from older readers, that the boomers also faced a difficult economic environment. Um, I think, and I uh, you know, discussed this at some length in, in the book. In fact, I think that this is a part of an explanation for the bad policy choices that the boomers themselves have made over the past 30 or 40 years. Um, because uh, you know, the, we often think about the boomers as uh, you know, 
inhabiting these, this halcyon era of stable employment where uh, you could have the one family or the one earner household and the um, you know, a wife, if she chose to, would have the option of, of staying at home to look after the children, and the, you would have the lifetime employment. The reality is that that is the economy that the boomers grew up in in the 50s or 60s. It is not the economy that they ever really worked in. And uh, you know, for boomers who were graduating and entering the labor market starting in the 70s in the era of Vietnam, stagflation, um, you know, and then through the traumas of the very early 80s as the American economy tried to recover from that. I have a lot of sympathy for the argument that the boomers did face a difficult time earlier in their uh, working lives, uh, which is why, you know, for example, one other author who's looked at these issues has referred to them as a generation of sociopaths. Uh, you'll be relieved to think that I think that's unfair. Um, I, I mean, the... the the way I came to think about the policy side of this is that the boomers understood that something had gone wrong for them uh, in the 70s, um, that, you know, that the economy was not working the way it had for their parents. And a lot of what we've seen since then have been policy attempts to address those problems. Now, um, you know, you can argue about whether you think that it was a theft or not, but I think that certainly the thrust of many of those policies in effect, uh, even if not entirely in intent all the time, uh, has been to favor the interests of um, you know, the boomers who were making the policies that you know, they thought were intended to solve the problems that they had had, um, you know, rather than trying to take a somewhat more holistic view that might encompass an economy that would work, you know, that would retain some kind of intergenerational balance. You know, the, the housing market that led up to the crisis, I mean, to a fascinating degree, I realized that, you know, the real emphasis on home ownership in Washington actually had its origins in the 80s at a time when the boomers started to worry that they weren't buying houses in the proportion that their parents had. And you can't argue that that, um, you know, boomer emphasis on housing uh, you know, just kind of happened by accident. I think that you can look at an awful lot of policy prods along the way uh, that were intended to push boomers into home ownership without really thinking about what the broader effects on the market over time might be. Um, you know, I think that you uh, certainly, and this is probably an area where Connor and I could have a very long dis you know, disagreeing conversation with each other, but I think that one problem you can point to, especially uh, in the Obama era, was this tendency to look for policy solutions that would recreate the appearance of the economic security that the boomers had grown up with, um, you know, that could recreate the strong unionization, that could recreate the um, you know, general feeling of economic security without focusing enough on recreating the productivity boom of the 50s and 60s that had created that kind of security. So, you know, I think that you, it is entirely fair to have a conversation that talks about how some of these policy choices have created an economy that over time has lost a capacity to maintain some kind of intergenerational balance over time. Um, you know, I mean, certainly I'm, I'm open to you know, argument about whether or not you want to call that a theft, but the policy environment definitely happened. I kind of feel like I need to sort of let you guys finish this. First. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we Gen Xers, we're, we're not assertive. So I'm just, I'll, I'll let you have the last word on, the, on that question for now. 
But then let me actually, because I, I want to complain too. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, I, again, I didn't agree with everything. Again, I'm still astonished to the degree to which sitting next to a Gen Xer, all of a sudden I, I actually felt the generational solidarity that I read your book and was, ah, that's not a thing. Uh, so this has been fascinating for me. But one thing that actually, as the, um, again, as the success sequence guy here, uh, I'm about to have my third kid, and uh, there was nothing in there about that chunk of millennials, which is, I think it's actually mm-hmm. sort of the, the missing part of your big reveal at the end of the book. You, you actually, millennials aren't quite as young as you think, which yeah. is true. But insofar as you're talking about a cohort that's trending towards 40 at the, the upper edge, there are, there's a lot of us who have now entered into the, the world of having children, which is enormously expensive. And also, again, just not there. As part of this generational analysis, there's nothing in there really about the cost of childcare or about how having kids influences a bunch of your long-term professional tra- trajectory, long-term college savings. There's sort of occasional mentions around how instability around housing, either renting or home ownership, prevents people from forming families. But there's not a lot about the actually, once you're in there, how that actually contributes to this long-term, mm-hmm. really difficult asset formation problem that millennials have. Well, I, I mean, I think that, that is, again, a fair point. I mean, part of the um, reason that maybe it felt a little less urgent to me when I was writing the book is just because the reality is that for a lot of uh, people in the millennial cohort, um, you know, family formation has been delayed by a lot of these uh, tendencies. So I think that um, you know, especially when you put it that way, it is almost interesting that you so much of the millennial political debate right now is focused on issues like um, home ownership or the student debt problem uh, or job security in general. Um, you know, I think that there is definitely some interest on some of these uh, you know more family-oriented issues, but I think that. Maybe when we will reach a point when that discussion will become a lot more urgent. Uh, but for now, I think that if the family formation isn't at the point where huge numbers of millennials are grappling with that problem just yet, um, you know, that might affect some of the, these dynamics. I mean, I think though that a lot of the solution to that is going to end up, um, you know, being in issues like the labor market that I do talk about. I mean, I think that uh, one way that I wish that we could start thinking about these issues, like um, you know, the ability to have the resources to raise a family, I think that that actually is an output um, of an economy. It's an output of an economy where investment uh, is firing properly. It's an output of an economy uh, that is seeing strong productivity growth. Since we aren't living in that kind of economy at the moment, um, you know, that will create a lot of these knock-on stress factors. Um, so, I mean, even, even if I don't necessarily get into it in the book, I think that, um, you know, it's possible to extrapolate from, you know, some of the themes in the book into some of these uh, other issues. Uh, Could I just jump in on that? No, I think that, um, you know, just millennials may not be sort of grappling with uh, raising kids um, uh, and the financial problems that creates, but maybe the reason they're not grappling with them is because of the financial problems that uh, that uh, come along uh, with kids. But it's not just the financial problems. I do think that there's a, there was a, there are a bunch of things that have come together and made it harder, um, both economically and culturally, for um, young people to start families. Um, and there are, you know, some some places where I think we should uh, we should be looking at those specific problems that we can that we can tackle. And I think higher education is part of that, right? I mean, I think to the extent to which we have told a lot of people 
uh, again, not as a kind of generational conspiracy. It's just been a it's been a large, a big consensus that spans generations. Everybody's got to go to college, um, or they're going to be a, you know a loser for life, and you're not going to be able to afford it. Um, I think that is something that has that has made people wait longer and longer um, before they start thinking about having kids because they think that they need to build up these financial assets first, uh, and that may be you know again. Uh, higher education, childcare, um, some of the issues around raising children specifically, as opposed to sort of looking at the economy in general, may be fruitful. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week. I'm Nat Malkus. On the report card, we break down topics from higher education reform to the challenges of school safety with the experts we think are doing the most interesting work. Tune in to the report card by clicking on the link in the description below.